I think it's important that when we talk about worship and the distinction between traditional and contemporary, <clears throat> those aren't great terms in my view. I don't really like those terms. It's kind of like saying, do you prefer Chinese or Mexican food? You know, it, it seems to reduce it to something of a consumeristic appetite. And then I'm simply picking a preference. You're listening to episode 24 of Roundtable, a podcast produced by Mid-America Reformed Seminary. I'm Jared Luchibor. For this episode of Roundtable, Dr. J. Mark Beach had the opportunity to interview one of our newest instructors, Dr. Eric Watkins. Check it out. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Beach. I teach doctrinal studies and also ministerial studies, better known as systematic theology and practical theology at Mid-America Reform Seminary. Uh, we welcome you as listeners, and I welcome uh, to our podcast today Dr. Eric Watkins, who's serving as an adjunct professor for us here at Mid-America. Specifically, this semester, he has been teaching liturgics for us, also known as corporate Christian worship, and we thought we would have a conversation with him about uh, some of the courses he's taught here at MidAmerica and the topic that is more broadly considered pastoral theology. So we're going to get going. Welcome, Dr. Watkins. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh Perhaps uh, within, within the context of worship discussions, Dr. D.A. Carson has remarked some years ago that we need only examine the state of affairs, as he puts it, state of affairs as they exist in North American Christianity today, to witness how this topic of worship kindles debate. And he notes that many lay people can be rather bored with a variety of theological topics and even topics of controversy. But when you get to this topic of worship, uh, people are quick to uh, express their own convictions, preferences, likes, dislikes. Uh, perhaps it's not uh, the greatest to start on a topic of debate or look at worship from that perspective, but since it seems to be often the case, how about we start there? Your response to what Dr. Carson observes. It's hard to miss the fact that the church is very divided when it comes not just to the subject of worship in general, but more and more the church appears to be fractured along generational lines. Uh, less and less do you see multiple generations of the same family in worship together. Um, <clears throat> in the context of a lot of recent political discussions, social justice conversations have perhaps even further fractured the church along ethnic lines. And so strangely enough, um, in the name of unity and evangelism, on the one hand, the church seems to be more and more fractured, both ethnically and generationally, than perhaps it ever has in the past. So I would say Dr. Carson is not only right, the problem may even be worse than it is, as worse than it appears to be, uh, not simply as a pastor, but as a dad looking at my own children, uh, raising them in the church, raising them in the truth, God willing. And, and wondering what their liturgical future might look like, uh, it really seems to be an interesting question. 
Uh, the pressures that are upon them on the one hand from um, the world are one, but it seems now that there are pressures upon the church to be more culturally self-reflective than ever have been before. Yeah, given that observation and having the opportunity to teach uh, Christian corporate worship or shorthand liturgics for those training for gospel ministry, uh, what is your, let's start on a more positive note, what is your delight in uh, taking up a class like that? So an interesting question was asked a long time ago uh, by Jay Gresham Machen in a sermon as to what is the most important thing the church does. And the answer that he gave was evangelism. And he was corrected by one of his professors, Gerhardus Voss, who said the most important thing the church does is worship. I think that's an important thing that needs to be recovered. So much of what the church currently does and is inventing uh by way of worship practices, is done in the name of evangelism, trying to reach millennials, trying to reach a particular people group, whatever it is. But, you know, as many have said, including people like John Piper, uh, evangelism exists because worship does not. To say it a little bit differently, worship is eschatological. It is the activity of believers in heaven with those who have been evangelized for all eternity. We will glorify and enjoy God together alongside those who have been successfully evangelized. Uh, So worship really is the most important thing that the church does. It's even more important than evangelism. And to be able to teach a class on worship, I don't even so much consider myself an expert on the subject. Rather, I've enjoyed learning more about it for the sake of the class and thinking about it. As a pastor, I'd love to see our worship more and more biblical, more and more robust, and more and more joyful. It's interesting, the connection between outreach, evangelism, and worship. Uh, What I find interesting about that is, uh, I think I agree with you, that uh, we don't need our worship driven by an evangelistic outcome or goal or aim. I think you would certainly agree uh, for all Christians including long-standing Christians, we need to make our worship sensible and understood and and uh, biblically grounded in every way. It's curious that when Jesus engaged the woman at the well, uh, she, upon being discovered, exposed in some of the trials and burdens in her life, switched immediately topic to, you Jews worship this way, we Samaritans worship another way, including place, very specifically about place. Do you think that has uh, relevance to questions surrounding worship, especially Jesus' reply to her? Yes, <clears throat> especially what he goes on to say, uh, which is very interesting articulation that the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. In a certain sense, Jesus' answer to her is rather remarkable because he tells her that the way that she is worshiping as a Samaritan is wrong. And in, in this you know, elastic, almost postmodern evangelicalism, um, it's almost unimaginable to imagine telling somebody the way that they worship is wrong. After all, sincerity and authenticity 
are the measuring rods by which all worship is judged today. But Jesus says, no, what you're doing is wrong. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But then he goes on and says that the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. Often we use language to describe people who are outside the church, but maybe thinking about spiritual things. We call them seekers. And then the well-meant plan becomes to fashion church in a way that when those seekers come and visit, the church will be more accessible. It will seem less foreign and strange. And somehow, I guess that's supposed to make them more willing to become Christians, which is a pretty bad theology and a questionable view, not only of man and whether or not our tactics are really that effective in converting people, but also about worship itself. In John 4, the only seeker in worship is God. God is the one who is seeking the woman. God is the one who is seeking true worshipers. And those whom God seeks, he will draw to himself and they will become true worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. So the irony becomes, then the name of evangelizing people, uh, we basically recast worship into categories that are more like them, which is to say uh, non-Christian, so that they might become more like us, which is Christian. And at least from my view, that would seem to be somewhat backwards. Yeah, that phrase that Jesus used in spirit and in truth, I suppose commentators uh, take that down many uh, pathways. What's your own take on what Jesus intends with that phrase, in spirit and in truth? Now, that's a great question. Gerhardus Voss has a wonderful little article, True and Truth in the Gospel of John, and he contrasts uh, things that Jesus refers to as true, not so much with things that are false, but things that came out of the Old Testament and were temporary, typological, and provisional. And the point is, When Jesus comes, and in particular when the Spirit comes, those types and shadows will be done away with, and the reality that they were looking forward to, which is coming Christ, will take their place. So likely what he is saying is neither their mountain in Samaria, which was wrong, or the mountain in Jerusalem, which was right but temporary, neither of those will stand the test of time. The result of the resurrection is that the people of God will ascend a new mountain, heaven itself, the heavenly Zion referred to in Hebrews 12. And in that sense, we begin now to worship, participating in the age of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, ascending the heavenly hill of the Lord, uh, his heavenly Zion. I think that is what Jesus was hinting at with the woman at the well, although I don't know how well she would have understood it at that time. Well, Jesus introduces a new epoch. He uh, inaugurates a kingdom, <clears throat> a kingdom come. And uh, if I heard you right, uh, articulating some of what Voss says, there's this. Uh, I hate to always. Uh, I hate that we resort to this word, but an eschatological uh, dimension. Uh, there's both uh, the future having barged into our present and our present reaching out unto a future uh, that is spirit 
and that is truth. Where we end up is where he's already taking us. He's already enfolding us in that. Did, did I did I translate what you said correctly <laughs> or not? <clears throat> I think so. I think another way to say it is if you look at um, the idea of the presence of God as it relates to worship, there is a sense in which um, God is both our destination, but he's also our travel companion as we go. So take like the book of Psalms, you know, the songs of ascent have this narrative in which the psalmist as a pilgrimage is making his way from wherever he might live, usually in the, in the lowland. And he's headed up, up towards the mountain, up towards the city of God, up towards the temple. And in that sense, God is his destination. The one that the psalmist is traveling to and his goal in that sense is eschatological, to enter into the sanctuary of God, i.e. Psalm 150. On the other hand, God is also our travel partner who goes with us. Think Psalm 23, the Lord who is our shepherd, he guides us, he leads us, he travels with us, he protects us as we go. So that as we think about worship, there is a real sense in which God is already present in the Emmanuel of not only Christ coming, but the presence of the Spirit giving us a foretaste of heaven every Sunday as we gather together with the people of God and are called out of this world into God's presence and nourished by the ordinary means of grace. But while that already exists, there is still the not yet when we enter into the assembly of the just where there's only righteousness, life, and holiness. And in that sense, uh, the worship that we await will be far better than anything that we've participated in so far. Indeed. Uh, for Reformed people, we can't possibly think about worship or talk about worship without also thinking about talking about the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, and there principally within a corporate setting, the use of word, the preaching of the word, sacraments, and um, certainly prayer is also integral in corporate worship. Could you comment uh, how you view this in light of the centrality and importance of biblical worship, uh, the importance of not giving short change to the means of grace? I think one of the interesting dynamics is that people want things, kind of people want their religious experience much like they want their food, and that is quick. Uh, and any sort of discipline that would be required to maintain physical health, we would certainly exchange for a pill or something that could do, you know, get the work it workout in really quick. Uh, <clears throat> before becoming a pastor, my first degree was actually in therapeutic recreation, and I spent a lot of time trying to help people either get into shape so they wouldn't have a heart attack or bounce back from having it in the first place. And I think it's much easier to stay in shape in the first place than it is to bounce back from a heart attack. And the ordinary means of grace are God's way of giving us a regular, healthy diet and discipline plan to keep us in spiritual shape. Another way to illustrate it would be to say that people, you know, for interesting reasons, often want sort of mountaintop experiences, um, you know, sort of Disney World-like experiences or from a Christian point of view to go to some sort of a, you know, camp or conference type of experience and have some sort of a quick, intense packaging of 
of, of our spiritual needs. But it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, nobody lives on mountains. Everybody lives in the valley. People live on ordinary, regular diets with ordinary, regular six-day-a-week lives. But there's this one day that God inserts into our regular life in the valley where he lifts us up from the valley into the heavenly Zion, and he feeds us with what even Scripture refers to as the bread of heaven, Jesus in his word, in his sacrament, and prayer. And that's just the regular steady diet that God has designed for his people. But regrettably, and I think this is often influenced by our sense of consumerism and materialism, instead of wanting the outward and ordinary, too often we long for the inward and extraordinary. But we don't get those mountaintop experiences. And even when we do, generally speaking, they don't last or sustain us. You can't get in good shape in a weekend or in a day, it simply takes diet and exercise. Spiritually speaking, the same thing is true. The outward and ordinary means of grace are God's spiritual fitness plan. Uh, My own observation is that uh, much of what we call contemporary worship, and as that has uh, spilled over and spread throughout uh, evangelical world, Reformed churches, even Roman Catholic churches, my own observation is that that seems to be really grounded in neo-Pentecostalism. At least that seemed to be the impetus to much of it. It was where much of it was copied from off of some of their worship practices, which, if I'm not mistaken, is more oriented to mountaintop experiences. Uh, could you comment, particularly on preaching and sacrament, uh, well, maybe pick on sacrament in particular, and if you want the Lord's Supper more particularly, because in the Reformed churches, uh, there's been uh, a diversity of practice on the use of uh, the Lord's Supper as a ordinary or an occasional uh, dimension of corporate worship. What do you think about that diversity of practice in the Reformed churches? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And the way that you began by looking at <clears throat> um, the narrative, the church growth movement, uh, church growth movement, and things like that. Let me just back up even a step further and say I think it's important that when we talk about worship and the distinction between traditional and contemporary, <clears throat> those aren't great terms in my view. I don't really like those terms. It's kind of like saying, do you prefer Chinese or Mexican food? You know, it, it seems to reduce it to something of a consumeristic appetite. And then I'm simply picking a preference. Uh, from my view, the, this, those distinctions are more theologically and historically informed. And I'm a converted deadhead. If you don't know what a deadhead is, go online and look it up, but it won't be very edifying. So I, I came to Christ in a wannabe hippie culture, and it has always caught my attention that some of the major transitions that took place in the church like the transition from traditional contemporary, that's sort of the church's analogy to the cultural revolution of the 1960s. So in as much as there was a cultural revolution outside the church, there was a liturgical revolution inside the church that divided generations along preferential lines. And the thought was, uh, we can try to keep everybody at least under the same roof, by having a traditional service for those that preferred that, usually an older generation, and a contemporary service that would attract younger people and keep 
the kids home, so to speak. And so there it went. The problem is give that generation or that dynamic, uh, you know, a full generation to grow up and those kids become leaders in church. The churches no longer would look like the traditional church that once began. It would look like the contemporary thing that replaced it. If you feed into that, the youth ministry paradigm, which I'm not opposed to youth ministry, but there are some questions I think we should ask about it. It became another version of the same that began to subdivide along generational and cultural preferential lines. And in time, when those kids grew up, went to college, and started looking for churches, they clearly were not looking for churches that embodied the traditional theology, ordinary means of grace, high view of the sacraments, etc., but rather were looking for churches that looked more like their scaled-down youth group-type ministry churches. So to your question of the Lord's Supper, it's become a sad thing to me that in the name of evangelism, the Lord's Supper has been largely excised from many churches because when the table is fenced for the Lord's Supper, you know, it draws this line in the sand between believers and those who have not yet made a profession of their faith. In our church, we practice the Lord's Supper pretty regularly, and there are even wonderful stories of conversion, including a young man who, when he came to Christ and made his profession of faith, I had the privilege of asking him what got to him, and he said it was actually the Lord's Supper that spoke to him week after week, saying to him that he's not where he needs to be uh, spiritually, and the supper was part of what the Lord used to convert him. The other way I'd look at it is for the sake of the believer, if God has designed this for the uh, strengthening and comforting of our souls, uh, we aren't really helping ourselves or our friends by being wiser than God and uh, saying that this is something that we ought not to embrace highly. Now, I want to be fair because there are some in certain traditions uh, that practice the Lord's Supper infrequently because they view it highly, and I respect that view. There are others who practice the Lord's Supper weekly because they respect it highly. Both of those views are respectable. The problem is when we just have a low regard for the Supper and dismiss it on evangelistic grounds or something along those lines. Yeah, I think the value of the Supper, and one thing it always brings us back to, is the simplicity of the gospel that it that our salvation is done for us accomplished for us a gift to us and uh, the strength of the sacrament the supper in that sense i think always brings us back to christ his cross and the good news that, which is the gospel itself but what about preaching there i mean we get you've taught homiletics here at mid america also and have assisted in that area of study. Uh, that too is part of means of grace. And uh, what about the notion that some popular writers have uh, espoused today? I, I think I agree with it, but I know there's those who don't, who say that in preaching we need to preach the gospel every time. Would you reply to those? Well, you could reply to that itself, but you might reply to those who would say, well, if the text is a gospel text, I will. Otherwise, I don't preach the gospel every time. So I believe in preaching Christ from all of Scripture for all of life, and that each individual text is a part of the larger 
story of God's plan to redeem his people in history through the person and work of his son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So from the time that the Bible uh, exposes the reality of sin in Genesis 3, God also introduces his intention to send a redeemer. And the rest of the Bible is the part of that unfolding mystery of who that redeemer will be and exactly what he will do when he comes. Uh, Saint, Saint Augustine, I live in St. Augustine, St. Augustine <laughs> said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So the two, in a certain sense, mirror one another or are like twin sisters that are not identical. Their relationship, though, is is very, very strong. So it's not always easy to preach the gospel from every text in the Bible, but I would say that it is possible when the right hermeneutics are applied, it can be done without being forced or anachronistic. Uh, More importantly, and it's possible that I'm wrong here, but I've imagined if someday I have to stand before God and give an account for my preaching, I would rather have made the mistake of preaching Christ too much than preaching man too much. Yeah, I think in back of that too is maybe a failure to understand the nature of the gospel itself because the law converts nobody. Uh, The law offers no remedy. Uh, The law, even in its instrumentality to expose our sin and show it up, in a way we sort of still need the gospel and the regenerating power of the Spirit to enlighten our hearts to even hear the law for what the law is doing to us in that sense. But uh, a gospelist sermon uh, doesn't sound like a Christian sermon to me. Brian Chappell, who, of course, is a popular homiletician, has written a very popular textbook on homiletics, uh, speaks of the fallen condition focus as something to help take a biblical text, identify an audience, and to be able to begin to center and and target a sermon to a given audience. Could you comment on uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the fallen condition focus, maybe to help us target the gospel to a given uh, audience? So all of the Bible, in a certain sense, is kind of like soil that has been given for our sake so that the seed of God's redemption might grow in that fertile soil. Uh, So maybe another way to look at it would be to say that every text somehow shows us our need for the Savior, but it also is right to say that every text exists on the plot line, the narrative plot line um, that sets the stage for Christ's coming. So if we interpret the parts in the light of the whole, we see that Christ is coming. But also, if we look at those parts carefully, we see why he has to come. We need a Savior. David was no perfect king. He needed a Savior. Moses was no perfect prophet. He needed a Savior. Aaron was no perfect priest. He needed a Savior. And we are no perfect people. We need a Savior. Uh, Many Puritan writers have said well that those who know their great many sins recognize their need for a great Savior. And so I think Chapel's focus on the fallen condition focus idea is helpful. Another lens on it would be in the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, It's set out like this, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And in a certain sense, you can't truly appreciate the grace of God unless you see it against the background of our guilt before God. And so a 
proper treatment of the law, even if that comes through some sort of narrative unfolding in a particular historical text, let's say, uh, helps us appreciate the grace of God that we have in Christ. But then the flip side of that fallen condition focus, what the text sort of demands, is something that we can actually strive to do in obedience or application um, from the text, uh, because what the law demands, the gospel gives And often, even in the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, what we're required to do uh, by the law, um, only by the work of Christ and his spirit, are we enabled to do as expressions of gratitude. The uh, topic of preaching is one that uh, many preachers are interested in. Uh, Many preachers, uh, I don't know the percentages, but if you ask what's their favorite aspect are part of pastoral ministry, many of them would reply, the pulpit. And yet uh, we also face a pew that is not always ple- as pleased as we would hope with what's happening on the pulpit. I had a uh, opportunity in Mid-America's Messenger, the Messenger it's called, which is a publication uh, mostly for our constituency, to write on this topic of preaching and what is a good sermon, what is good preaching. And uh, having the opportunity to write an article like that, I divided the topic into four parts, getting it right, saying it right, applying it right, and the spirits right. Uh, that's background for you to comment on what I was after in this. Getting it right, of course, has to do with exegeting the text correctly. Saying it right is speaking in an idiom that people uh, can hear. It's, it's in an idiom that uh, reflects their capacities and the sort of cultural setting in which we find ourselves. Applying it right means not just offering information, but administering the word into people's lives. And and the Spirit's right is we can do all the above well, but it's the Spirit is like the wind that moves as he pleases, and he can accomplish more than our best efforts. And uh, without his work, our best efforts don't go anywhere. Um, that's all just to set up to let you comment on uh, those kinds of things relative to preaching. What's your take on that? Well, I'd say that there's no higher calling than preaching the Word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. And I don't mean by that to diminish other people's calling to do uh, other things because there's there's great glory and the opportunity to honor God in all the things that we do. But Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, is on the one hand terrifying and ought to make us shake in our knees. And at the same time, to see God work in people's lives, not only to save them, but to sanctify them uh, is a tremendous privilege uh, I very much appreciate the idea that you, the ideas that you were just laying out. Preaching is a complicated thing, um, and regrettably, it's becoming an art that is diminishing more and more. I'm rather dumbfounded to meet um, pastors who have not had any training in preaching at all, and are just you know nice guys, great communicators, good in business, winsome, charismatic personalities, whatever it may be, and. 
And then they find themselves in a pulpit and after a little while begin to wonder, what am I supposed to be doing with this text? And how do I, you know, once I'm done preaching all the texts that I, I memorized in a parachurch ministry in college, what do I actually do with the whole book of the Bible? Um, and, it, and it becomes a little bit overwhelming. Uh, a strange little um, quote comes out of the book uh, Moby Dick, uh, where the pulpit is likened to the front of a ship and it leads the, the world the pulpit, like the prow of a ship leads the world, uh, and it says, storms are coming, prepare. It also says, fair weather in front of us, and rejoice. And there's just something really wonderful about the way uh, that the pulpit uh, has the ability to lead the world, uh, let alone to lead God's people through his church. Well, Dr. Watkins, it was great having a conversation with you, and we're thankful that you're here assisting us in the education at Mid-America Reform Seminary, and God's blessings on you. Thank you. We're thankful to have Dr. Watkins here on campus teaching these wonderful truths to our students. Next time on Roundtable, a few of our faculty sat down to discuss the Old Testament, how we as Christians should read it, understand it, view it, but most importantly, how to see Christ in it. All of this and more next time as we begin a new three-part series here on Roundtable, The Relevance of the Old Testament for Christians. I hope you'll be joining us for that exciting series. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.